0: There's a passage in Octavia Butler's fictional novel Parable of the Talents that feels like a good place to kick off today's episode. It goes, In small communities, people are more accountable to one another. Serious misbehavior is harder to get away with, harder even to begin when everyone who sees you knows who you are, where you live, who your family is, and whether you have any business doing what you're doing. I'm Sid from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. Now, this is the belief of a fictional character, and she presents an interesting idea here, that the smaller the community, the easier it is to see others' destructive behavior, the harms they cause, their real motives. But the context we live in isn't small, right? America, the diaspora, the world. We live in this enormous community called humankind, and only a handful of those with power represent our disparate interests. So we already know firsthand the ways white folks in power have manipulated and weaponized our interests to their benefit. Uh, We've seen it historically, we see it today, so that's not necessarily new. But it's just as important for us to look into the motives and actions of our brothers and sisters we elected into office. It's just as important for us to hold our people accountable. But what does that even look like? And what can we do to ensure our needs aren't being manipulated and instead are being met? Today's guest, Dr. Albert Samuels, will help us begin that work of holding our people accountable. He is an author, elections analyst, and a professor of political science, chairing the Department of Political Science and Geography at Southern University. We're happy to have him on the show, but before we hop into that conversation, I want to share a story with you about a gross demonstration of white greed manipulating Black needs. Say cheese. The elderly Black couple poses with a freshly unwrapped Christmas present. They're holding hands and surrounded by Ku Klux Klan members in white hoods. 106-year-old Jack Riddle had heard it all. He was born in 1841 in Atlanta, Georgia, and he was sold into the slave trade for $50. He grew blind with age, but still loved to walk around and dance freely to prove he was still up and still alive. But little did he know, his love for life would be taken advantage of. By 1948, Jack had outlived even slavery and was settled into his life with his wife in Alabama, Aunt Josie. Christmas was coming around the corner and they had one wish, to have a radio set to listen to preacher sermons from home. But it wasn't their children or any of their friends who finally purchased the gift. It was the Ku Klux Klan who made their wish come true. The KKK had recently been trying to rebrand. They wanted Black people to believe they had a heart. And if they gained Black people's trust, they hoped that we could finally understand the benefits of white supremacy. So they took a picture with the riddles and their new gift and made sure it was plastered on newspapers everywhere. Jack Riddle died a few years later, but even his obituary displayed the remnants of white manipulation long after slavery. They even claimed his favorite saying was, live right, obey the Lord, and the old master will take care of you. But Jack Riddle wasn't the only black person white folks tried to trick into protecting white supremacy. You might want to look behind you at the invisible white hoods in your room because it's happening to you right now, to all of us. And unfortunately, sometimes that specter is coming from our own community, from the brothers and sisters we've elected, manipulating our interests just the same as white folks.
1: Albert, what does Black liberation look like to you?
2: When I think about Black liberation, I think about the term of self-determination. I think of Black people, both at the individual level, And at the collective level, having the capacity to chart their own destiny, to be able to make decisions about what's best for their communities, for their families, to pursue occupations, to pursue economic opportunities, in a sense, free from the concerns that there are structural roadblocks in your path that might prevent you from doing this, regardless of your best intentions, regardless of your efforts, being able to chart their own destiny, to be able to decide for themselves what's best for them or what's best for their communities.
1: How does your work contribute towards helping us get towards that vision of Black liberation that you share?
2: I chair the Department of Political Science and Geography. I think anytime you you spend an opportunity with young people, which is what we we do here in academia, that offers this opportunity. You know, I mean, you, you never know who's sitting in those chairs. So I feel very privileged to to have this opportunity to meet with students in this critical cross-section in their lives. is a very formative period.
1: So when we're thinking about, you know, challenges that we may encounter, one thing that comes to mind for me is the challenge of clarifying what Black interests really are, specifically if we think of political interests and challenges around this idea that if we aren't clear on what our interests are, that has left the door open for others to dictate what they think our interests should be and use that against us and weaponize that. What are your thoughts on
2: that? There's always been an interesting challenge for us. We assume sometimes that's simply because African-Americans share a common experience of oppression. In fact, that history is kind of what has forced us into a people in the first place. But we assume that simply because we have experienced this common experience, that we should naturally be of one mind. And so a lot of times our search for an agenda presupposes that our common experience of racism and oppression, that that by itself should be a unifying principle. But we actually look look at our history, what we found is that Black people have never always been of one mind as to how to address some of these issues. And I think maybe it would be helpful to us if we understood that and sort of accept that that's actually actually a reality.
1: That's an interesting perspective. And I, I see that same thing. I think where a lot of folks start is the history of oppression in terms of you know, why we should consider together. And I think that there's another perspective as well, which is looking to the future, a shared destiny. You know, you mentioned determining our own destiny. And I could see that, I do see that as, you know, not just for individuals, but with us as a people as well. Like in order for us to continue to exist as a people, as a race, literally we should have a shared interest in that and existing and not continue to become victim to, you know, the oppression, which could very well lead to extinction, really, if you look at how white supremacy is treated other indigenous groups of people. But um, before we, we go down that road, I would want to come back to something you mentioned in terms of Black folks historically having different interests. I'd like to explore that a little bit deeper. How can we be thinking about what black interests have looked like in the past, where they've varied, where they've where
2: they've intersected. One of the things I like to tell my my students, you know, when I teach any kind of black politics class, I said the, the crux of black politics or the existential question that black politics raised is that we are the only people in this country who didn't ask to come here. So basically now that we are here, what do we do about it? I think if you can just boil it down to what the crux of, of Black politics is about. You know, we are we're that group of people who were kidnapped. Now, what do we do about it? You know, broadly speaking, some Black people have said that this is our home. This is our country. We have just as much right. In fact, in some way, we have more right than anyone else to have a, a moral claim on this country and have a claim on the bounty of America. We're entitled to the same rights under that, that same constitution, that same racial independence. That, that, that's one view. Now that's a broad view under that umbrella, a whole lot of different strategies. That's one basic view. The second view is this idea that America is fundamentally and probably incurably racist. And that regardless, of our best efforts, America is going to be what, what America is. No matter what, America will never accept Black people as equals. That impulse is largely let's get away from white folk. Let's get away from white folk. And then that has manifested itself sometimes in back to African strategies, Black nationalism or cultural nationalism. The idea, okay, we just need to control our community and control our own or control our own. Institutions was this idea that America will never fully accept us, and we just need to accept that and somehow carve out our own identity. And in some ways, these two approaches are not always mutually exclusive, but they're these these are I call them, these some of the broad tents of black political thinking that we see throughout our history and it's, and even in the present time.
1: To us, I guess, sum up those two broad viewpoints. Would it be fair to say, you know, integration versus separation, or assimilation versus separation? How would you, how could you
2: sum that up? Yeah, no, I think those are the a lot of the common ways which these things are manifesting themselves. People like Frederick Douglass come to mind in the nineteenth nineteenth century, or Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X. Keep in mind, that's not a new movement. You, know, you have black people talking about. Leaving America back in the 1830s. So sometimes a lot of what we think is new is actually old.
1: So over time, I'd be interested to understand how these interests have been used against us. And that could either be from outside our community or within our community.
2: Largely because. Uh, we are a because we are a minority. Sometimes because we are less powerful. You know, we've always believed that unity is important. Now, because of the nature of white supremacy and oppression, always the struggle had been backed by you know, the, the willingness to apply ruthless violence to maintain white supremacy. Individual black people oftentimes have an interest in terms of their own personal well-being, oftentimes in doing what will protect them. Slave revolts, for example, were foiled because individual Black people betrayed them. Because of the power of, of white supremacy, And it's always backed up ultimately by force. There's always an incentive for some Black people to side with the oppressor. We don't want to sugarcoat. There is always a market in America for the Black person who is willing to criticize other Black people in front of white folks. I'll argue that it's a bipartisan hustle. We normally think of that as something that's a province of Black conservatives who gets on television to criticize President Obama or some other, other civil rights establishment, oftentimes has very little organic connection to the Black community. You know, they're largely on TV because they're supported by white folk. I mean, is there really any, for example, explanation for why someone like a Ben Carson, who his only qualification for running for president was his willingness as a Black man to go to CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee meeting and criticized President Obama in front of white folk. He called it the worst thing since slavery. Like, white conservatives just, well wow, just spawned over him. Go back to my circle so back to my original point. We normally think of this as something that's a province of mostly black conservatives. But we also see this among I've seen some black leftists do this as well, you know. I mean, they didn't miss an opportunity doing while Obama was president to get in front of a microphone, talking bad about Obama, about how he wasn't down with the cause. you You would think that it was actually personal. And I say these things not to say that Obama shouldn't have been criticized, not to say that Black people had no right to hold them accountable. I'm not saying any of those things. I I just use it as an example of this idea. I believe there's always a market in America for the Black person who is willing to criticize or badmouth other Black people in front of white folk. And I say that's not limited to just one side of the political spectrum, I think it is a bipartisan, a multi-partisan hustle.
1: Yeah. You know, there are folks who would take an opposite position of what you shared with the example of those Black public intellectuals and Obama, some would say that Obama was wagging the finger at black fathers, despite the fact that the stats say black fathers show up more than fathers of any other ethnic group. Obama's sort of was carrying on this certain narrative and criticizing black folks in that way and, and other ways. And, you know, folks would say, okay, well, Obama's being, you know, he's put in this position to, to do these things. But I think your point remains the same where, you know, in any type of position of publicity or power, there's that element of the system holding up incentives for Black folks to publicly go against one another instead of focusing on the actual issue at
2: hand. And that includes President Obama himself, you know, just to your point. In some ways, because Obama was essentially the first Black president, in some ways... That actually constrained him because white people were just ready to pounce on him. And so he often resisted what many of us would consider, quote unquote, black issues.
1: But it's one of those things where it seems like, obviously, Obama has a special place in the hearts of the majority of black folks. But, you know, I always thought it said more about America. That was one of those things where America, okay, we can say we're not racist now but you know i don't know how reasonable it was to expect president obama to do anything specifically for the black community you know he's the president of america is president of this imperialist powerhouse world superpower that has interests that have nothing to do with black people and sometimes have everything to do with black people often to our detriment. So with him and other politicians, what should we reasonably even expect from folks that are in these positions of power, understanding that, you know, this is a system that is going to protect American interests before anything else?
2: We treated Obama the way sometimes we treat a whole lot of Black politicians. We have given many Black politicians the space or the license to essentially think that they can take us for granted. So, what did Black people ask about him for? I think sometimes we we assume that if he's if he's Black, he must understand, and that we don't have to articulate what it is that we actually want. I don't, I'm not saying that some of the criticism against the individual is not valid, but you know, I think that that's a responsibility that we have as well in our community to articulate our interests and actually expect more of them, but also to be engaged in the process.
1: You express that I think we as a community we have expectations of members of our community, which I think connect to what we mentioned before with either, you know, a shared history and present of oppression that seems to be the most unifying factor. But, you know, we elect someone optimistic that they will change something. So I do think we still have this sense of shared destiny. We automatically think that because someone looks like us or similar to us, expresses that they're from, you know, a similar experience or community as us, that they should automatically have those interests. I think we. it seems that we go out and we vote just because somebody is Black, right? We vote for them oftentimes. And you mentioned that either engagement or accountability on our end as citizens. How do we get more engaged to the point where we can hold Black elected officials accountable in the way that I think we would like to, but don't seem to be as effective with right now as we could? How can we do that?
2: We probably need to, on one hand, Understand the difference between symbolism and substance. Some of us who like to get into the weeds of policy and, and the implications of this often ignore how powerful and important symbols are. They invoke emotions and sensitive identity and things like that. The average person you know, doesn't do politics, okay? Those of us who do this do this for a living so they have a hard time understanding that the average person you know is concerned about going to to work every day they go to baseball games and softball games i mean they have other things in their life and sometimes politics comes weighted up a list but symbols are important in our case simply the fact of our exclusion from the corridors of power that gives voting and black People who are running in this kind of a symbolic, you know, power to us, to some degree. That oftentimes that's good enough at a certain point. However, oftentimes because of that, we may come into the process with some unrealistic expectations. And so, I think that we have to understand that emotion is a lot more important than thinking. People who are excited and people who are fearful sometimes will actually do more and actually vote more. Than, than people who just are academic and think about it. At the end of the day, the, the substance is what matters in terms of advancing policy and, and get things done.
1: But uh, is, is that more so important for the folks that are getting elected? Like, is that is there really substance there for Black folks that are putting these people in these positions?
2: You know, if you go back, for example, I, I, one example I use, you go to the Reconstruction period. The reconstruction period, you know, a society... That had been premised upon the idea of white supremacy for two and a half centuries. And all, all of a sudden, this black man who just a few moments ago was considered chattel, that man is now sitting in the state legislature. And so the idea of black people now, ex slaves, voting, that idea was such an offense, an anathema to white people who now felt that their status was now threatened, that they were willing to almost destroy the whole political system in order, to, in, in order to put black people back in their place. So the substance doesn't matter when white people get afraid.
1: You know, with that said, is it reasonable for us to continue playing this game? Is, is it reasonable for us to continue Participating in the system, we're sort of, you know, hoping that they will share power, but we don't really have any significant demands. Are we playing the game the right way? Uh, if we, if we're trying to acquire power, if that should be one of our interests, are we, are we doing this the right way?
2: I think we have to play the short game and the long game, and I think we need to do it better. It should not surprise us that power never goes see Think about demand. But I tell you what, those who have been forced to concede power, we should understand that you always trying to take it back. As we think with some of the gains that we've made, they need to be understood in the context that those who have here to for maintain disproportionate power and privilege, they're not going to just say, no, well, we've been wrong all these years. We were wrong for... The active and the complicit role that we played in slavery, and so I think that we need to first of all recognize that uh, progress is not inevitable, and gains may must be fought and defended. If we learn the lessons of history, we can frame better arguments. Going, you know, going long term, think of Thurgood Marshall and the campaign against Brown v. Board of Education, the legal strategy to. Overturn Plessy really began the 1930s. It took a long time to build the cases and the expertise, you know, and the experience of those cases and the, and the precedents to ultimately overturn Plessy versus Ferguson. And I think that one of the things that we we have to learn to do, and, and yes, yes, the short game matters, but also we, we need to be thinking about the long game. We need to be thinking about strategies to try to advance our community and, and, and maybe even things that right now don't seem to be possible i think there's a lesson in that for our time you know so we've got to broaden our sense of what it means to be defending our interests so let's not wait until tomorrow We, we today recognize that it's going to be hard imagine a different future
1: Just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history you matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at BlackHistoryYear.com. Most people do five or ten bucks a month, but every little bit makes a difference. I appreciate you supporting the work. Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Leslie Taylor Grover, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Tabitha Jacobs, Abani Jones, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Zane Murdoch, Aquia Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. In Black History Years, executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.